netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. We're proud to say that this episode is brought to you by Interdubs, the standard for online work-in-progress posting. Go and visit interdubs.com and request a trial for your company. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast, where we take our passion for visual effects and bring you in-depth interviews with visual effects artists around the world. The FX podcast was started to give us a place to dig deep on the technical side, talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to hardworking, creative people producing amazing work. This is your chance to hear directly from the source, from the front lines of visual effects. For this show, Mike Seymour is talking with Angus Bickerton, visual effects supervisor on the film Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows originally was a TV show a soap opera that ran in the U.S. on the ABC network from 1966 to 1971 for a total of 1,225 episodes. The show ran at 4 p.m. Eastern and rather unintentionally found an audience of teenagers who were just getting home from school at the time. The show also had various other runs in syndication. This film version is another collaboration between director Tim Burton and actor Johnny Depp and is a more humorous interpretation of the original show. Let's join the interview now. Mike Seymour speaking with Angus Bickerton about the film Dark Shadows. My name is Barnabas Collins. Two centuries ago, I made Collinwood my home. My love. Until a jealous witch cursed me, condemning me to the shadows. One of you die! For all time. It's um, it's interesting because it, it, I think it really evolved a little bit. We all read the script. We knew obviously its origins from the TV series, uh, and the TV series was always was never intentionally funny. Uh, was obviously this slightly strange gothic soap that ran I don't know three to four days a week. I think uh, you know early afternoon, just to, just in time for um for a. Uh, Tim and uh, and Johnny Depp to get home and watch it, um, but I don't think it was ever intended to be funny. And when I read the script for Dark Shadows, I imagined, you know, Tim Burton dark gothic with tinges of humour. Uh, but I think more fun came out of it as it evolved, really. I came to it having no real understanding of the TV show. Um, it just, I don't think, aired here. Uh, maybe it did and I missed it, but uh, I'm certainly of the right age to have seen it. But, uh, yeah, I was so I was really coming to it with a blank slate other than, of course, having seen the trailer. Um, but let me ask you a couple of questions from your point of view. When you get the script, uh, there are a couple of huge obvious things that would leap out one of which is uh, the manor itself and that manor burning, as well as the cannery and the town and that burning. Um, how quickly did you decide how to approach this stuff? Was it, because uh, there must have been a lot of options open to you, and I think the solutions you come up with worked really well, but I'm just wondering how did you, how quickly did you say, okay, I know how I want to do this film technically? Well, actually, um, the cannery was a slightly longer evolution because... Tim always wanted to create the town, and uh, and that became quite a huge set build, one that we still, you know, set extended. Um, because none, none of the buildings he built had roofs on them. Is that right? That was that's right. Yeah, uh, and the, the cannery had had uh, the cannery was almost an actual full build in that the construction of the cannery by Rick Heinrichs and his art department was actually as if you had built it for real, but it had to be redressed a couple of times. You had to have abandoned, broken down ramshackle roof for part of the film and then a renovated roof, uh, obviously, uh, as uh, Barnabas Collins brings brings back wealth to the family. And um, and then we ultimately had to blow it up as well. But the, the house, um, Collinwood Mansion, uh, I kind of knew within the space of about three minutes of talking to Tim, actually, because um, uh, I literally, you know, 
got the script, went in for a chat with Tim, didn't chat for very long, it was only about 15 minutes, sat down in his office, and the first thing he said is, how do you feel about miniatures? <laughs> and, and literally, I mean, it was the first thing. I said, I, I, I love miniatures, I think they're great. He said, well, I'm, you know, I think we're going to have to do some in this film, and I think it's appropriate to the style of the film. Um, and I agreed completely. So, um, so that, that wasn't, a, there was no sort of, you know, ooh, hard thinking about that. I think the only thing that, um, I possibly ummed and ahed about was whether to go third or quarter scale. So you ended up with a third scale, didn't you? About a 33 foot miniature, is that right? 30 foot high? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, the real building was, we calculated about, um, a hundred feet, just under a hundred feet, to the very tip of the tallest tower. So yes, third scale. We, we, we effectively was a big set or a, a bigature, if you like. And you had a lower floor built at normal scale for people to walk in and out of doors, I guess. Yes. Again, uh, Rick Heinrichs, uh, Rick Heinrichs Art Department designed the house, very much referenced to the. TV original TV series house, um, and I'm pointing that out because uh, although I'm not, you know, uh, a full fledged dev- devotee of the TV series, I, I had to do quite a bit of research, you know, just check out all the original series. Probably one of the reasons why you never saw it is because it, I think it aired live, certainly in the first few seasons. So I don't think it would have shown outside of the states. But it always used to have this title sequence: waves crashing on rocks. And then it would cut to a house silhouetted against the sky, kind of a day for night shot, all in black and white. And and that house uh, is at an actual mansion, I think, north of New York somewhere. So uh, you know it, it exists. Um, and then in later series, I be- uh, I believe they use some different buildings. Um, to represent Collingwood. So we referenced that, that first series house. So from a, a shop point of view, away from, say, a hero shop where it's a, a wide establishing, you've got the ground floor. You've, you have to either set extend that up or blend the lower with the miniature above, which would, I guess, be... Did that necessitate motion control on the cameras or did you just have some really clever remapping of the miniature in terms of digital capture or something? Well, I, yeah, I've done that before in the past. You know, uh, I guess a few years ago, that was the way to, to if not, we, to shoot the live action, to track the live action, and to uh, solve that as a, moco, a scaled moco move. But you kind of just know these days that we're going to steady cam or we're going to extend on a technocrane. There's going to be mechanical wobble in there somewhere. And as soon as you start to try and scale that with moco, uh, those tiny little movements have to be filtered out because the rig can't repeat them at any normal speed. And they could become minute vibrations, which uh, can't be done. And you just start dropping the camera speeds down. And I guess also there are just different methodologies available to us. And so I opted fairly on, fairly early on, that we were going to basically do literally. We would take camera measurement. We'd um, we always had a, sur- a survey, total station survey kit on the state on the set. We would take good camera notes, lenses, camera heights, start and end positions, survey start and end positions, and uh, and then we plotted it all out literally and and did mix and overlay. Sometimes I would shoot uh, a best guess move. Sometimes I would just shoot a lock off at the start and end of the camera move. Um, but in, with the intention that we would project, most likely uh, image project to match move. So, so did you have the advantage of being able to photograph, therefore, for those projections with matching lighting setups? Or how much uh, did yes. you have to sort of work on, the, on those uh, uh, digital yeah, projections? So the, the lower half of the the set, which was essentially one floor, yep. um, was built at a location um, uh, called um, <laughs> Bourne 
It's a common. It's a location that's been used for so many films. It's been used for uh, Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. It was used recently for War Horse. It's this this popular uh, National Forestry Commission location uh, just outside London. Right. Uh, I'm thinking Bourne Wood, but why, why does that not sound right? Um, and, I've, and I've shot there on other films as well. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just this open piece of land. You know, you've got a good. Uh, clean horizon, trees all around, no telegraph lines, and it's a popular place for UK-based films to go and shoot. Captain America shot there for some of its uh, soldiers, uh, soldier scenes. You know, all sorts of films are shot there. Um, so, the, yeah, the, the ground floor was built there by Rick Heinrichs, but only really just the front facade. Um, we had green screen behind the front door, so if you open the front door, we had a partial, about 10 feet deep lobby entrance, and then there was a green screen behind it. So if you looked into the house, if you opened the door and looked into the house, it's a composite, basically. And then if it was a wide shot of the house, it was a top-up. And so we did allow ourselves, we you know, we built a, a flexible miniature shoot schedule to, to match the lighting. Um, which of course you don't know what it's going to quite be, but obviously we plotted, we built the miniature so that it, it was in the same alignment. Although the miniature was actually done um, at um, some different studios, uh, it was aligned to Bournewood location. So you shot the third scale miniature at Pinewood or at uh, Shepparton or somewhere, was it? Where, where, where would you shoot that? The third scale miniature was shot at Longcross Studios uh, near Chertsey, which is not far away from Shepton Studios, but it's a it's a new developing studio. But of course, you can't rotate that to get the sun in the right position. So you must have just been having to film it to try and sort of match the same time of day and sort of same light. I presume it was being lit by natural light, was it? That's one of the great advantages of having something that big. It was. Um, I used to work for um, for Derek Meddings. Uh, you know, famous for doing originally the Thunderbird series that inspired me, and then he moved on to the sort of Roger Moore, James Bond films, and and the Christopher Reeve Superman films, and um, and his favourite ploy was always to build a miniature and shoot it outside, yeah, and, and let God do the lighting, and that's what we did. We we built it on a twelve uh, foot rostra, made up uh, and uh, aligned it so that. It, it was in the same alignment to the sun as the original set at Bournewood, uh, having taken into account that it was four months later. Of course, there's some really geeky aspects why that's a clever move, which I think are worth touching on because not many people do this kind of miniature work anymore. I mean, one of them is that the sunlight will in fact be parallel, of course, as it's coming at the at the set. But the other one is that you get an equal f-stop reading across the set because you're not actually worried about inverse square laws of mounting a bloody great light two metres away from it at one end, but obviously by natural maths, sort of three or four metres away at the other end, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, you know, fantastic shooting stop. Um, at third scale, you also instantly get... You know, you don't worry about depth of field issues. Obviously, you can get round to those by closing the stop down. But there's something sympathetic in the way the lens is shooting as well. Uh, you know, if you were 30 feet away from the live action set, you're 10 feet away from the miniature. Uh, by definition, you're generally on a wider lens. Your focus on the lens, obviously shooting outside, we're going to get a, reason, a pretty darn good stop, uh, which will help depth of field. Massively, but there's something about the fact that you're on the towards the the infinity end of the lens rather than the close focus end of the lens. Right, uh, uh, make, really does make a big difference in in the way things look. Now, of course, in your uh, case, you wouldn't have had a problem with lens curvature matching because you were going to take these plates and then project them, presumably in nuke, to match to the live action plate. Yeah. But this was Absolutely. all shot on film, so you would have had to have made sure that you got your grains matching and your and stuff. Yep. Well, yes, um, Bruno Del Bonel was the uh, main unit DOP. We, he shot on 500 ASA, 5219. Um, he had developed a, a specific technique with uh, Peter Doyle, who was the DI grader, uh, digital intermediate or grader or colorist. I don't think he'd like to be called a colorist. No, he's had such great experience on, on grading 
big film projects such as the Harry Potter stuff when it was on film. Uh, he's obviously yeah. very knowledgeable. Also, of course, Lord of the Rings. Um, tell me this though: the the that's got us the Collingwood Mansion. Um, mm. Did you take the same approach for the Canning Factory and the fire? I've seen a shot from on set. It looked as if that was also a miniature. Was there a miniature of the Canning Factory? The the there were two canning factories. There was there's Angelique's, which is the Angel Bay Canning Factory. That's the red canning yep. factory. And then there, what's originally a very ramshackle, rundown, grey canning factory, which is is the Collins family uh, canning factory. Uh, they the that was the walls were, were built of that. No roofs were made, although there is a roof construction there in order to hold out the rain because it was also. Interiors were also shot inside that set as well. And then all we, uh, Mats and Miniatures, who uh, handled all the model construction uh, based out of Bray Studios, uh, we just built the roof only. So when it explodes and burns, uh, Joss Williams and the special effects crew spent a good while rigging it with, you know, mortars and uh, their own particular. Um, pyro concoction to get a magenta flame a magical magenta flame and uh, then we built a um, one fifth no one sixth scale roof with individual tiles um, again on a 12 foot roster so we could match all camera angles and positions um, and 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 Joss's team came in and uh, blew that up as well. So all the explosion shots are composites of live action below the roof line explosion, combining with miniature above the roof line explosion. Now, in the case of blowing up your set or burning, for that matter, the uh, the mansion um, set, I presume the mansion miniature was what actually went up, or was there a complete? duplicate for the actual burning of it because it, it, it struck me as like if it's if it's a complete duplicate it's quite an expensive thing but if it's the original well then there goes any pickup shots and thanks very much for the gorgeous model but we just burnt it yeah um yeah we we went for i mean the whole reason really for going the, the huge size making it a, effectively a set uh was because so that we could burn it i'd actually seen you know i've done uh, miniatures like this before and obviously the pervading opinion is go as big as possible uh, for flames. Um, I'd seen some very good stuff uh, that uh, was done by Mats and Miniatures for Wolfman uh, with Steve Beggar's visual effects supervisor, and uh, I've been really impressed by the flames on that. Uh, so I thought, yeah, well, let's let's go for it. Let's burn a third scale miniature down. So we we planned our schedule so that we shot for about a week and a half doing multiple elements and then we we went for the burn we did shoot some separate burn elements it was plumbed in with gas flame and um all the, all the collapse was rigged by mats and miniatures uh which we sort of did a very basic previs to just get tim's approval of where it would break down and so on and then it was all rigged and it was a it was a one-shot gag <laughs> So I, I love how kind of retro that approach is, um, completely valid, but retro, of course, obviously in yeah. keeping with the film. Let me keep going on those because I know there's some great digital stuff you did, but uh, I'm enjoying this. So I understand also, rumour has it, that some of the ghost scenes were actually shot in an underwater tank. Again, sounds very old school. Is that true? That's right. Um, we, um, Bella Heathcote, who plays the ghost Josette, uh, and also the character of Vicky, uh, she had to get um, used to working in U-Stage, the underwater stage at Pinewood. Tim, we did some tests very early on with some stunt doubles, and we got a stunt double in her dress moving around underwater, and Tim really liked the movement of the dress. The downsides to that are um, that you obviously the artist is fighting the viscosity of the water, can't move very, very fast. We could use underwater uh, water movers, i.e. propeller jets, uh, to disturb the water, blow hair, etc. Uh, although you had to be pretty close to do that. Um, the, 
you, you, you do get issues like you get, you know, you're going to have to paint out some bubbles, you're going to get some bubbles captured in hair, you're going to get bubbles captured in people's nostrils, etc., rather unattractively. Um, and also you have all the issues of, of keying underwater um, because obviously you lose the red channel over the course of about 20 feet. You pretty much lose any uh, red information. Um, so we did that. We shot some stuff underwater. Tim really liked it. Then I was a little bit concerned about that, just the practicality. You didn't like that. you didn't like the test, or yeah, or is more like just the concern about having her in there. The tests were fantastic, but I I wondered if we could do the same thing by overcranking dry right. against green. So we built a a mini rostra with a sort of a, a, a perforated top to it through which ran a sort of a pole and a, and, a, and a bicycle seat on it so that effectively Bella could sit on this bicycle seat with a couple of uh, foot stirrups and we could blow air through the perforated platform, which is painted green, and we have, we'd have multiple air movers and we shot that with one of, one of these wonderful little mini digital cameras you can get these days uh, you know, like the, for 99 quid um, at 200 frames a second and showed that to Tim and, it, and effectively you get the same thing. Um, but again, always the problem is you want her to glide along in real time. You know, you want her to uh, traverse a distance, a reasonable distance, but you, you either have got to overcrank if you're shooting dry or you have to start speeding some of the footage up if you're shooting underwater. <laughs> um, so, or alternatively, you have to try and plot your camera moves so that you can effectively put her on a card in a 3D setup, uh, which is what we effectively did. And Tim wasn't really sure which... And I showed him the test, and he liked it, and he, there are, were really nice things about all the way the dress billowed, but the hair wouldn't move quite as nicely. Um, so we ended up doing a kind of a fusion of the two. The majority, I would say was the overcrank dry methodology on a green screen stage, shooting at 120 frames a second. But then we got a stunt double in and shot 24 frames a second underwater. And you're often seeing underwater hair with dry Bella. And, of course, you had sort of digital crabs and stuff uh, to that, which is great. But the the thing I could... The thing I couldn't understand is if you'd done that approach, um, I can imagine digital crabs being added and stuff, but I can't quite see how you did that with her falling from the chandelier through the floor. And not in terms of the floor effects, which are nice, yeah. but just in terms of like how do you get someone that's either on a jet or <laughs> sitting on top of a jet or underwater to uh, do the fall action? That, that was a stunt double, and she was on a green pole platform in the tank at U stage. Uh, shot by Mike Valentine, underwater cameraman, and it, uh, she's um, she's holding weights. Uh, she's got weights in her dress, and she's got weights in her hands, and she genuinely fell back, you know. But she actually, it's a it's quite slow arc and descent. She only dropped about um, five feet, I suppose. Uh, but that's how we did that one bit. So that is a genuine. That's a full underwater. Right. So she's uh, already underwater. And underwater, yeah. she falls an additional five feet underwater, which gives yeah. you the motion of her falling off, and then you extend it in post, I presume. Yes, then she, yeah, then she gets stabilised and tracked to the plate and, uh, uh, and reanimated effectively. That yeah. seemed to be pretty effective. Were you happy with that sequence? Um, yeah, it took a little, you know, we fiddled around with it a lot. Um, again, we went... We, we played around with the look of it a lot, and Tim just kept back coming so, saying, too Harry Potter, it's too Harry Potter, you're going too fancy, I want it nice and simple, I want it like, I want a nice, beautiful effect. As I mean, he almost said as if we shot it in the 70s, as if we'd done it optically. Um, because, again, he felt that was appropriate to the style of the film. So there was additional water work that had the same kind of blending stuff going, wasn't there? I mean, there are some scenes, for example, when, um, when uh, well, a Harry Potter actress really <laughs> bites the dust yeah. in, the, uh, in the boat at night, or she's already 
bit the dust, or, or yeah. has she? Um, but uh, that, I understand, had the same issue of trying to shoot some real stuff and then combine it between tank and live action. Tell us about that. Uh, again, well, that was where um, there was an excellent uh, uh, dummy made of Dr. Hoffman, Dr. Hoffman, the character played by Helena Bonham Carter, uh, wrapped in carpet. And because Helena did do a lot of, you know, she, she, got, she got herself acclimatized to being in the tank as well. But wasn't really, you know, it's, it's difficult working in a tank, doing, opening your eyes, you get a different look, your cheeks puff up, you know, because it's almost like being in the shuttle for a week, you know, um, gravity means, or the lack of it means that your features start to rise, your cheeks rise, you know, the, uh, the eyes look quite glassy, they almost look painted onto the eyelids sometimes. Um, so it's, it's an uncomfortable process, you know, particularly when you've got chlorinated water, etc. It's it's not an easy process. So what we ended up doing with Dr. Hoffman uh, was that when she plummets down to the bottom, that is purely a dummy, um, and shot by Mike Valentine in U-stage tank, just against black, and then we added additional caustics, you know, volumetric caustics and some bubbles, and then uh, painted out. You could see the bottom of the tank, so we painted some of that out. Uh, then for the final approach to her at the end, that's all CG environment created by MPC Vancouver under Eric Norby. And um, we shot the element of Hoffman literally tethered to a weight in the tank against green screen. Uh, we shot it with the camera on its side for a full-length figure. And then we went in and shot full frame face. But, so the, but the actress herself is now underwater, held down with weights? Uh, no, sorry, this was just the dummy still. Okay. And then uh, we literally lined up. We then got uh, Helena against a small piece of green screen and we, you know, video mixed and overlaid and lined up her face and we've tracked her face onto the dummy. Basically. Ah, right. So when you see that shot, what you're seeing is it's a card element. Uh, largely obscured by CG fish as you're approaching, the fish clear, um, and and she's she's, she's effectively just a card within a 3D environment. There. So let's uh, let's go to some other digital creatures that were added, and and I heard from I think the guys at Method that you guys had to add quite a lot of digital seagulls. In fact, that was your signature thing for just giving away <laughs> that you're at uh, at uh, Seaside Town. Stevens, Steven Seagals, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> we had a Nigel. We had a Nigel. We we, we named, started to name them because we did actually shoot a green screen seagull, you know, on a perch, got him to flap around so that we had uh, some live action elements. But basically, if you see it flying, it's a CG seagull, and um, and we got very particular about the way they move, and um, and it was, yeah, they they were very important to Tim to populate and make this seaport this little sea town um believable um you know they should be clustered around boats and clustered around the canneries um but you know obviously they're an impractical uh, tim actually said again in the spirit of trying to keep everything feeling real he did his, he kept saying to me why don't you just go out and shoot some stuff and I, I kept saying well the problem is how to shoot seagulls you know you don't want to be chasing them around with a camera um, you can do, you could isolate individual ones, perhaps, you know, roto them out or key them off a blue sky, stabilize them, put them onto a card, etc. Or you could try and go to a nearby dump or something like that, where the <laughs> seagulls gather and try and get, you know, a lock off shot of them against blue sky. But always there's the difficulty in how do you extract them? How do you key them? How do you reanimate them? Um, so we went CG ultimately, and we we got you know very particular about the motions. Um, you know, they, we, the idea was they would just be a texture that you wouldn't really be aware of them. They would just add to the believability of the town. Um, but obviously, you can't help but look at them sometimes. So you have to be quite. We talked a lot. But, you know, I was always worried that they were just. We didn't really build them to very high resolution, and I was always a bit worried about, you know, h how well they were moving. Uh, but they did a great job. 
I think the, the attention to detail on the direction of the seagulls and actually the director being that concerned about them because they really are in the background. I mean, this is not, you know, like, not really a story point. But, but that one only gets trumped by the fact that you had to remove from, I believe, an astonishing number of shots, like 700 or something, every time Johnny Depp blinked. Is that true? Yeah, there's no, Johnny Depp doesn't blink in the whole movie, yeah. Yeah, so, that was... Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I mean, I'm sorry, I just did not even notice that. And I'm not saying that in a derogatory sense, because obviously no. maybe I would have, but it, was, it just seems like an astonishing attention to detail. And that extended to his reflection in objects, is that right? I mean, I know he was removed from obviously things like cleaning his teeth, but there was never a reflection of him? No, that's right, yeah. Anytime you see him reflected in a shop window or on the top of a car uh, as he goes through the town, uh, all those are painted out. And it was, a, it, was a, it was an early note from Tim and, and Johnny, actually, together, I think, had come up with the idea um, that, you know, he never blinked. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept because I kept asking Tim, I said, is this, is this, you know, as we were accumulating the shots, um, I said, is this having the right effect? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really working, it's really working. Um, and, I mean, it kind of carries on from what I think is interesting about... Tim and Johnny Depp, and possibly, I mean, I have a half a theory that the reason why Johnny Depp is as huge as he is is because he has a lot of the attributes of a kind of a silent movie star. And not only that, but obviously this is something like his eighth collaboration with Tim Burton. They always create, obviously... different and unusual characters. Um, Tim also has, um, you know, he doesn't believe in moving the camera where it's not necessary. So, you you, you know, obviously get, as you do in this film, Johnny in uh, quite a, you know, quite a stylized look, which it's really interesting because on the the set, you often look at it and go, wow, that is, that's really quite theatrical. Uh, And then Tim frames up on a shot on Johnny and holds on that shot, you know, doesn't unnecessarily move the camera. So you end up with almost like a silent movie star and the way a silent movie star was photographed in that they used to just hold the frame and hold your attention. And I think that's one, you know, as, a, as opposed to modern action films where the camera is always dancing around the camera is always on the move the camera's often doing pyrotechnics and and actors are often just sort of you know the clothes horse to put or to peg the action onto it, it's an interesting so, concept and I, I i totally it resonates with me as you say it because uh he does command uh a real presence on screen but from a visual effects point of view I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. So we know that I really like this film and I really respect everyone involved, but let me just be devil's advocate. You, you've gone and painted out every possible reflection of Johnny Depp and every blink, which is literally hundreds of shots. But, but one could argue the converse, which is there are shots where he's quite deliberately exterior by the water, walking around, has to be in sunlight, and we've established that it's a plot point that he can't be in sunlight, and you just forgive it because it's a stylized kind of a film and you're not really nitpicking at it. And it seems to me that there's like times where the entire production is, to one of a better term, anal retentive in its, in its fetishes, and then other times just says, hey, it's just movie-making, let's not get too obsessed about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, uh, that's what makes uh, um, these filmmakers unique. You know, they have their, what, what, what are their particular focuses and what what interests them. Um, uh, but is it hard for you to get tapped into what matters and what doesn't? Because, I mean, you could be a technocrat and say, well, he shouldn't be in this scene here because he's obviously got light in the back of his neck. And, yeah. and, and, and that technocrat would be happy painting out every reflection in an object that I wouldn't even notice. Yeah. But by the same token, it's, these guys are clearly, I mean, you, you included, are clearly creative and artistic and so there are also decisions that are made that are run contrary to that but getting that translated to a production schedule and knowing what matters seems non-trivial yeah well no i agree Uh, i mean i would say that the the blink removal 
it was not, I mean, although it sounds huge, it wasn't a huge deal in that it would either be incorporated by facility if they were doing a shot, or we had an excellent little in-house team that would do any of the non-visual effects blink removals, as it were. Um, yes, we had the same, you know, we all went, uh, hang on, how come he smokes when he's standing in the sunlight later on in the film? at a key dramatic moment, and yet he, can, yet he can take a walk on the beach or go out under an umbrella and nothing happens to him there. And, I, and it, it is a story conceit, which we did all think about and did all talk about, but it, it never really bothered Tim at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not saying that it doesn't work. It just seems to me that, uh, and I'm not speaking as film critic now, I'm speaking as a person who is thinking about it from a production point of view. It, it's um, you know you, there's a real process there to tap into what is important to the creative talents of the film because clearly you you know it's not immediately obvious sort of well it's terribly important to get this right down to the smallest blink and it's not important to get this down at all kind of thing but anyway yeah I, mean, I think um, uh, Tim has a very obviously I mean uh, none one is a is a former animator. Uh, and uh, is a great artist, and he has great eye. But and he also has, and, and this kind of ties in with what I was saying about the way he shoots things a little bit, he has um, a, a great sense of what's important story-wise about a shot, and then after that, doesn't nothing else bothers him, to be honest. All, all the rest is, you know, he's not... Sometimes he'll, he'll be very, very specific about key things, and then other things that you might just go, uh, uh, hey, wait a minute, what about um, such and such? And you go, no, that's not important for this shot, or doesn't matter for this scene. Um, so he's all, all, that's the thing that's amazing about him, is he has, always has a very clear vision of what he wants. Talk to me about uh, the work that was done in terms of the, the other end of the scale, the really sort of complicated digital work, especially around uh, uh, the way that uh, the villain cracks and the final sequence pulling out her own heart which has to be obviously digitally done and at the other end of the spectrum from these kind of older school things we've been talking about yeah uh, we called that sequence at the end which is the battle between angelique bouchard the witch played by ava green and uh, and um, and barnabas we called that it was straight away in the script it's called the battle royale um uh, which tim straight away also said Supernatural domestic violence is what he wanted it to be. Um, the ideas, however, evolved. It was one of those cases where it was a, you know, it, well, I was, wouldn't say it was five lines in the script. It was, it was a page of script with beats in it, but no specifics, really. Um, and so, and 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 this was, the, and this kind of leads into what Tim wanted to do with the film. Tim felt very much that this was a character piece. Uh, as a, for instance, um, he wanted to get all the leads together in a room and set them up and photograph them as per a famous original photo of the original cast to see how they all work together. And he wanted to rehearse scenes with the actors and get the actors' input, particularly Johnny's, uh, obviously with the character of Barnabas. And that meant that almost as a reaction possibly to Alice, I don't know, we did virtually no storyboarding and we did minimal previous because he really wanted to be able to let the scenes evolve from the characters on the set. So uh, we did have a small uh, previs team to try out concepts to show to Tim, but we never actually plotted out a specific shot. Everything else, all the shooting was done not from the hip, but you know, it was devised by Tim and Bruno Del Bonnell, the DOP, on the set with the actors. Uh, we knew gradually as we went through the production more and more what was going to be involved. As we, you know, but it, it really was an It wasn't like we had it planned 
at the end of pre-production and we knew that in six weeks' time we were going to be doing uh, Battle Royale and we knew how we were going to do it, it evolved from the rest of the scenes. And from that, Tim would say, yeah, what we're going to do is we're going to do this. And Was that first initial five pages as detailed as to say that she's been cracking and then you know reaches in and pulls her heart out, or was even at that level it wasn't defined? Um, it was. I know. To be fair, actually, I think though that that idea was sketched out, but not specific. You know, it wasn't really detailed in the script. Um, we, in fact, you know, because we we didn't know whether she was going to be hollow. Whether she could the the idea that was referred to constantly was she's like a broken doll was the intention, and we had a lot of reference imagery of you know Victorian Victorian or Edwardian dolls and the way they look and they take on this bizarre um, look you know as the as the varnish cracks and reveals the webbing underneath and and they, you know we've, we've seen them used almost really I guess in sometimes in horror movies the look of a, a an old mm. doll particularly you know, um, nasty looking, um, you know, but we didn't know whether when she broke away, would that reveal the 200 year old, witch that she was underneath an old hag, which was one idea that was suggested. Um, one, an early idea was that she would, you know, on, on death revert to her 200 year old self. But the idea really of her becoming, being this sort of just shattered doll actually probably evolved mostly from, Tim and a bit of Johnny through the shoot, through the course of the shoot. So, how did you actually pull that off from a technical point of view? Obviously, the actors are walking the stage and working out the blocking, but to the specifics of getting her to have deformed limbs and yeah, um, well, Tim had a, you know some of these reference images of broken dolls, etc. Uh, there were attempts, some early attempts. No, actually, there weren't. On in the case of Angelique. Bouchard, uh, he said pretty early on, he said, I want to be able to determine how much she's cracking, to what level, how big or small it's going to be. He wanted that to be something that could evolve as well. So he didn't want to put any makeup on Ava Green. So, uh, she uh, would, uh, you know, every morning she came onto that set, she'd go into the makeup chair and she'd get uh, green and red dots painted on her face, uh, which, of course, we'd photograph every day to plot to, to, to um, track the position. We'd then always have two witness cameras in addition to the shooting camera, um, which were just small HD cameras uh, manned by the visual effects crew. And uh, it's all... She was then also uh, cyber-scanned, um, key phoning positions, um, and we also shot video, multi-camera video reference of her performing her lines as well. So we covered it every which way, to be honest. Um, and from that, NPC built a model, uh, you know, a, an animatable model of Angelique's head and body, um, which was which just had to be what I call rotomated or match animated, uh, had to be tracked and then match animated so that obviously if she talked and her face distended or distorted, it had to do in the CG as well, and that pretty much had to be match animated. With some final recourse to tweak the tracking of that in compositing. So I'm seeing how much of the actual actress in those final shots as she breaks through her own chest. Am I seeing her? Um, yeah, it's her. Um, but we're effectively with blended in match moved 3D version of her as well. Right. So you had quite a few companies working on this. We talked about NPC. There was also Method, Senate and others. Um, yeah. How did you coordinate with all of those and... And how did you coordinate between yourself and, and the director, given the, the spread of companies? Um, Tim has um, a lovely cutting room in North London, uh, three steps away from his house. So he could literally walk out of his house and go to the cutting room. Um, we, we were based in Soho, so we would probably about twice weekly go up to the cutting rooms to sit down and have a review with Tim there. Or alternatively... Uh, 
um, he would come down to, we would do probably every two weeks he would come to MPC to review work, uh, which is MPC is in Soho, central London. And, um, and then also as I would propose a shot to be finaled, we would then review that with the established grade, the grade that had been set by Tim and Bruno Delbanel and Peter Doyle at the, uh, the DI suite at Technicolor, which just happened to be a few doors down from where we were. So um, it was, that was the kind of... And then, effectively, uh, every day I would submit work in progress to the cutting room as quick times, HD quick times. Um, you know, sometimes, even if it was just grey-shaded animation, uh, I'd send it along with notes, basically. But you've so, got you've got booth, you've got uh, companies in Vancouver, you've you've got a pretty pretty big spread. Um, but you're just comfortable having all that fed in through you and to then to them. Yeah. Yes. Um, Tim really only visited MPC um, MPC London. MPC Vancouver was working separately, but uh, was a separate vendor, but. I liaised with them through MPC London. So I would do CineSync and RV sessions with them at MPC London. Uh, the Senate are at Twickenham Studios. is about 45 minutes drive out the centre of London. So I would, I did a couple of visits there, but I CineSynced everything with them, really. Um, and then I, and I did one visit to Buff, just, you know, the initial meetings uh, to acquaint yourself with everybody, really. Uh, and then I CineSynced everything with them. I certainly synced with the Method Vancouver as well. So moving forward, did, did you, uh, let's say another film comes along and it's, it's a similar kind of uh, project, do you in, enjoy the thinking uh, more on your feet, problem solving of not having this stuff previous or given you've got a large number of companies and you're dispersing stuff out, you would, have, would like on a next film, uh, assuming the director wanted it, to go on a more previous path? Um, I think I think it was this was appropriate to this film, you know, yeah. Because this is this isn't Avengers Assemble, um, yeah. which which I saw recently and was fabulous. But I don't think you could take that approach, obviously, with Avengers Assemble. And um, and there is no doubt that Previs is critical to very intensive or heavy sequences like those, because uh, well you very, very quickly get lost in a sequence if you haven't previous. But it was appropriate to this one because it was on a more human scale, I think. And I really enjoyed doing it this way because, yeah, it did keep you on your toes. And it was a, it was a little bit... No, nah, it wasn't. I mean, it's not as intensive as, say, theatre, but, you know, it made yeah, every day you were going in and, um, and yeah, figuring things out. I, I really enjoyed it. And that, it felt appropriate because that's the way Tim wanted to stage the scenes, so it felt appropriate for us to do the same thing with the effects. And let me ask that same question again on two other aspects, which was this was shot on film and, and we started this whole conversation on on miniatures or bigatures. So again, uh, any moving forward, I'm not looking for criticism on this film. Uh, this is a yeah. great film, but just moving forward, did you miss not being on digital or you really enjoyed the film and would you do you feel like you want to do more miniature work again? I, well, I, I've, always, I've always been a big fan of miniatures. That's partly, again, because of my... Your background, My, yeah. back, my background. So I do like that. I love just shooting things for real. Um, but it's a very expensive way to go. can be a very expensive way to go, particularly if you're building it as big as we were. Just It was, you know, you, you had to think long and hard about whether that was an appropriate spend, um, to be honest. You have to you know, figure, could I do that a bit smaller, image project with a bit smaller? Could I shoot black buck burning elements Could you know, and comp that into smaller projected miniature? All those sorts of things. But it seemed appropriate this way. Um, just it was, a, it was more of a gut feeling than absolute sort of practical thinking, I'd say. Um, uh I would as for shooting on film. I've always loved film. Again, it's more more my background. I, I having come out of now shooting film digitally and on film, I like both ways. I'm very happy with both ways, to be honest. Um, it's funny I because guess. I've actually spoken to people lately who have said that while they were very respectful of film and enjoyed it, and they'd gone to digital. When they went back to film, they were kind of stunned at what they were getting because of the natural 
imperfections of film. And while that has a great look and I'm not dishing it, they were almost surprised to find, oh, my God, we were used to, for example, on set, right, you've got a, a tap off the, um, the split. You don't have, a, like, a nice high-res giant picture that you can be doing stuff with. And it's sort of like you kind of get used to these things. When you go back, you, you notice it, but maybe not the case for you. Well, I, um, the, the, the video tap issue is alleviated these days in that now the built-in, uh, there are built-in HD cameras into particularly the ARRI cameras that we were using right. that do provide a pretty darn good HD video tap. Um, so that wasn't quite as noticeable. Uh, definitely the textures of the film, you know, that when you suddenly, when you see a film scan, you go, oh, my goodness, I've forgotten how grainy film was. I guess particularly since we were shooting 500 ASA. Mm. But um, you do go, good grief. I, you look, come back to it sometimes and look at that and you go, wow, how are we ever going to pull the key off that? You know, compared with what you had digitally, um, it suddenly seems super noisy. And you think, how are you going to do fine hair detail with that amount of grain in the blue channel? But, um, but I... I it does still have tremendous latitude. Of course, the Alexa is as close as you're going to get to that. Um, well, I'm sure it will improve. But um, it's, it, it pretty much has the range of the negative, the Alexa. But uh, Bruno, for instance, with his, method, his shooting methodology, which was actually to overexpose and, sh- and have a heavy negative, um, the negative coped with a tremendous exposure latitude. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I must say the film looked crisp and sharp and well, you know, I mean, obviously it's well art directed, but it just, it had a, it it was stylish and it had a crispness to it that the whole thing in no way looked sort of looked technically retro. Though obviously under, you know, if we were, as we have delved into it tonight, there are obviously quite a lot of aspects that were retro. So it's, you've obviously bridged that and pulled that stuff forward um, and I, I think it's been great that you've done it. I'm just uh, dead curious to hear because really on paper you, were, you, were, you had like three or four things that uh, are fascinatingly in keeping with the, the period of the film but also sort of a, a different technological way to the way something may be done, done yeah. uh, with I another mean, project. Um, I think very early on, you know, when we came on board, uh, obviously Tim's last film was Alice which made a, a huge amount of money and was shot largely digitally. I think it was on the Dolce back then, um, 4K, from, and largely green screen. Uh, and I think, and it was also, it was also 3D. And um, so we came, we started the film thinking, oh, this will, studio's probably going to request 3D on this as well. And between them, Tim and Bruno chose to shoot film and Tim argued for and got approval to, to only do 2D version. Because um, I think it would have been unnecessary for this film to do a 3D version. Um, but it, you, uh, he, never, he never actually said so, but it almost felt like a reaction to Alice. You know, I don't want to do green screen, I don't want to do 3D, and I want to shoot on film. So, uh, um, it's... A viable methodology, I guess. You know, what? It's, see- it's Tim Burton. He's earned the right to do whatever he wants, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, the other thing is, one thing I would argue is, if you're going to shoot film, and this is a personal statement, I'm a big fan of what Christopher Nolan does with his films, and the way they are photographed, and the fact that obviously. Uh, effect shots are scanned, worked on, and provided back as digital files. So there, there must be some form of. I think they are actually recorded out, and I think he likes to do a traditional lab finish. And I personally can see that they are film shot on film, finished on film. I can see that. I still have quibbles about film and a DI finish. Wow. Um, I can see, we don't see prints these days, we don't see film prints these days, but they have a look to them that is not achieved through digital acquisition and projection, I don't think. 
I mean, on your work on sort of Da Vinci Code type films, films that are very tactile and very grounded in uh, an adult drama realism, uh, I, I mean, I see that film thing, but in the case of that, or this more stylized world of a Narnia or a, um, yeah. uh, a Dark Shadows, I just feel that you're getting so much out of the DI for for its ability to get those clean, crisp colours and, and sort of really deal with it. And I wouldn't have thought that there's any kind of sense of a gritty realism that's being lost because we're already in a kind of stylized world, be it Narnia or, um, or Collingsport. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's just... Um, it's a, I guess it's um, because I kind of used to... Well, I, you know, I've always shot a lot of film stuff. Yeah. I, I saw original dailies... And I just thought they were quite beautiful. And then there was always a tendency to want to sharpen and make a little bolder and a bit more graphic. And always, it seems to me, contrastier and bluer. It seems to be... Like, for instance, when I saw a remastering of Blade Runner, actually, I believe, in which you know Ridley Scott was involved... And I'm talking about, obviously, seeing this on DVD. I bought, you know, as a Blade Runner fan, I bought the yep. box set. And I'm, the, the experience of seeing Blade Runner in the cinema is one that's always stuck with me. I always loved the feel and the texture, obviously a lot of the design, but specifically 35mm anamorphic and some of that 65mm material as well. And then I saw the new digitally remastered version and it had lost all of the... It had gone blue and contrasty. And, um, you know, I actually had the DVD, so I thought, am I remembering this wrong? So I put the original DVD in, and there's that lovely softness. Then I put the remastered version in, and it's been sharpened, contrasted, and made blue. It just seems to be a vogue at the moment. Uh, yeah, reduce the color palette to uh, to two opposite uh, colors, and one of them is uh, blue, and uh, and yeah. you're away. It's uh, yeah, it's the kind of isn't it something like that? Is it was it is it orange and teal? Yes. Yeah. But uh, but here you had the advantage of a film that has earned the right to be art directed yes, to absolutely. to a degree uh, because you know it is not just the director, but it's just the nature of the material. I mean, it's not you know, it's vampires and witches. Um, yeah. And it, and it was great to not see the film as a kind of a, in the, uh, you know, the dark, blurry yeah. tones of traditional horror genre. Because it is, it's, it, there, there is a whole lot of stuff in this that's quite perky and quite, you know, bold okay, and bright. I'm interested that you're saying that because I, I think I remember, I haven't seen... I've seen I've seen the film a number of times now, but not 100% completed. Not you know the film finish. Uh, I've seen it in DI, you know, but I, I never I haven't seen the absolute final thing. And I read a review online from Variety which said dimly lit. So I was intrigued by that because um, so that's why I'm intrigued to know what you thought. I came away, for instance, from seeing Avengers Assemble the other weekend, and I was just. I've seen it digitally projected. Uh, I thought the work was astounding. I thought the film was great. I really enjoyed the film. It's got a nice sense of humour. And I was blown away by the quality of the pictures. I just thought they looked, the colours were almost beyond, I think they were probably beyond film palette now because they were acquired digitally and, and, uh, and project, you know, and so it's an all digital film. And the grade meant the colours were, they weren't, they, they weren't an animation palette, but they were, they were vivid. They were vivid, strong colours. And I was, and I loved it. It all tied together for me, worked perfectly. Um, so I'm well, just well of course, you've got a completely different uh, great colourist working on that. That's Steve Scott out of eFilm in LA. And, uh, and Steve has a tremendous eye. Uh, obviously, there's a big team on it, no. but he was the lead colourist. But yeah. I mean, Peter Doyle, another, as you say, on, on your film, another great uh, colourist. If we can just use that broad term colourist, you're right. Peter Doyle probably doesn't yeah. go for that term. But um, <laughs> but these people are producing superb quality imagery. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
I'm just, um, I'm just intrigued because I, I haven't seen the final film. I'm just um, intrigued, and I thought I got the impression from some reviews that it was a bit dark. Um, there is a lot of interior work that is dark by its set sort of requirements, but I would absolutely not call this a, a, a dimly lit film. But that's just me. I, I thought that it it was balanced very, very well. Yeah. Oh, good. good. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. It's been fascinating not only hearing your uh, your account of some of those uh, retro uh, techniques, but also your, your views on the industry as a whole. So that's great. And we really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Pleasure. Welcome home, Barnabas Collins. How soon can the horses be ready? We don't have horses. We have a Chevy. Thanks to Mike and Angus for that. Are you an FX insider? FX Insider is our special membership program that gives members access to more in-depth and members-only content. Details are at fxguide.com. Click the FX Insider tab. You've been listening to the FX Podcast. In addition, we do two other regularly scheduled audio podcasts. The VFX Show reviews visual effects in current releases as well as classic films. The RC Podcast covers the ever-changing landscape of digital cinematography. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd also recommend our weekly high-definition video podcast, FX Guide TV. You can find all of these along with in-depth articles, news, and more at fxguide.com. We also have a sister site, fxphd.com, that offers extensive online visual effects training. This is Jeff Huser. For my partners, John Montgomery and Mike Seymour, we'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.